Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. My name is Andy Boyd. I'm talking today with Andrea Warner, author of Buffy St. Marie, The Authorized Biography. Andrea, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here. I I really enjoyed the book. I'm I'm a big uh, Buffy St. Marie fan, you know, recently minted, but but quite passionate (laughs) Buffy St. Marie fan. Um, I mentioned before we started recording, I, I saw her this summer. She did a a, a free show in in a park in Brooklyn near where I live, and and uh, I I'd, I'd heard uh, I'd heard the Illuminations album, but I I didn't have any idea um, what she'd been up to lately. So I was quite surprised in a, in a very nice way uh, with what the concert turned out to be. Um, that's, I'm curious. Like that's so nice. Yeah. Sorry, I just want to like like it's so nice to see her live because like you don't know that it's going to be kind of I think a life changing experience. Yeah. You know, like it's and, and anyone who actually gets the chance to see her live, it, it inevitably does really sort of move something in their lives. It There's a shift. Yeah. Um, there was a moment there's at this venue, there's a sort of like barricade between the free area and the VIP pay for your tickets area. And um, during Bury My Heart, it wounded me. Uh, a bunch of kids just jumped the barrier and ran right up to the stage. It was a great, <laughs> great rock and roll moment. That's amazing. I love that so much. So I, I've told you kind of how Buffy St. Marie found her way into my life. Uh, what about you? How did you first encounter her music? Well, I think, you know, like a lot, I'm Canadian. Uh, and so I think like a lot of Canadians, you know, Buffy St. Marie is sort of like a name and almost like a myth, you know, you just grow up knowing her. Um, and, you know, you know, her name, you know, uh, maybe a few of her songs. Um, and I didn't, you know, I wasn't like hugely familiar with her work growing up. Um, and I, I've been writing about music for, you know, like a relatively long time. And when I started working at CBC Music in um, Canada, so like the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Mm -hmm. I really wanted to think about what it meant to be, quote unquote, Canadian music, like what goes into Canada. And Mm so, you know, obviously, I, I went in with lots of knowledge about, say, like Joni Mitchell or Neil Young or Leonard Cohen. And and I just I, I started thinking about like, well, Buffy St. Marie was absolutely of that same sort of generation and the same songwriting prowess. And we just don't hold her or we didn't hold her, I think, in the same esteem. Like she was always sort of the one who was an afterthought, it felt like, to mainstream Canadian media. And um and so I just started like to unpack a bit of that and I was writing more and more about different artists and sort of really thinking and, and trying to challenge myself to, about what it meant to be Canadian. I'm a white settler. Um, you know, Canada is a, a colonial foundation. Um, and so I just wanted to sort of think more about my participation in that and my benefits from that and, and the privileges and stuff. And then 
suddenly 2015, Power in the Blood came out. Buffy's sort of like, it was her first record since 2008. And I uh, had an opportunity to listen to the record. I was blown away by it. And I, then I had a chance to interview her for CBC Music. And um, I was just, I was trying to do like all of this research. Um, and there was, there was really like kind of frankly, very little information to be found, you know, like there just wasn't the same kind of, um, if I was doing another interview with like, you know, a, another iconic artist of similar age and similar discography, there would be tons of resources everywhere. I would be able to flip to a Rolling Stone or, um, you know, just any any kind of like long lasting musical archive um, or like of media and public record. And there just wasn't that that like there just wasn't that experience for Buffy. And so, um, I just was very frustrated. I, uh, you know, and I and so I got ready for the interview, and. Um, and we had this great conversation and I just loved it so much. And, you know, when you're interviewing people, you're thinking, I don't want this to end. Like if you're in a good interview, mm-hmm. you're thinking, oh, I don't want this to end. And uh, I was thinking that. And then she actually verbalized it <laughs> um, <laughs> while we were in our interview. And I was just I was just like, oh, wow. And I left thinking about that and just feeling like I really would love to, I don't know, just like, I, I think she, she deserves more attention and I would really love to maybe one day write a book about her. Yeah. So it was kind of the Toni Morrison thing of write the book you want to read. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I had no idea that she would say yes. Um, mm-hmm. I also knew that I w- did not want to write a book that did not have her full enthusiastic participation and consent um i yeah it really honestly i was really surprised that uh that she she ultimately did say yes because i think a lot of people had been asking her over the years and she had said no um and so i was just i was just like a little bit hopeful um because we had had you know that nice interview time and i had written about her work a little bit more and um it, and it turned out that she was a fan of my first book, and I didn't know that. Hmm. Do you think part of it, I mean, I, I think a big sort of uh, part of the book is Buffy's kind of marginalization um, as as uh, an Indigenous person, as a woman in uh, the music industry, which is, is often, and especially was in the 60s and 70s, dominated by white men. Um, do you think part of the connection between you and her may have been that you're a woman music journalist and that's becoming less, less uncommon, but it's still, you know, not, not exactly the norm. Oh, for sure. Like, I think, you know, I, I mean, definitely one of the, the sort of, I think one of the things that I've always wanted to do as a writer, cause I, I think I, you know, I knew even like, I mean, I've been writing for like over 20 years and, um, I've been in a lot of spaces that are really quite specifically like male dominated and it's hard, you know, uh, you, like it's, it's, it's hard to show up and be one of the only people in the room. Um, and Buffy has experienced that over and over and over again. So I knew that like, what I could do is I think 
um, you know, provide a feminist framework uh, and like, and, you know, centered in music criticism where I was able to, at the very least, like empathize and relate to aspects of um, her experience over her career. And I, and I think like, I think that's kind of what she uh, partly related to in, in my first book. Um, We ought to know, like she, she thought it was funny and she also appreciated that I wanted to, uh, you know, just try and like make space for, you know, women in the music industry. And, um, and I think like, that's, I think she was intrigued by those two things. One of the things you mentioned earlier was being interested in kind of the Canadianness of Buffy St. Marie. And I'd like to ask you about that. Cause I, I feel like she is identified with Canada, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure sort of why, <laughs> you know, like she was, <laughs> she was born in Canada, but, you know, raised in, in New England and, you know, spent most of her life, I think in, in the United States and lived in Hawaii for a long time, maybe still lives in Hawaii. I'm not, I'm not sure. So why do you feel like, I mean, she, I get the sense that she's much better known in Canada than she is here. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. Why she is, is. Why is that? What's, <laughs> why, why do we think of her as Canadian? Well, I, I mean, I think there's like a lot of kind of interesting things maybe there. Like she, she herself will tell everyone she's famous in Canada. Nobody knows her in the U S and I mean, I think that's an exaggeration. Like we've, I've been on tour with her in the U S and there's people are very excited to see her and go to her shows and stuff. But, but yeah, in Canada, she's absolutely an icon. And, um, you know, I mean, part of that I think is that, uh, we, we do have this very, you know, fraught and horrifying history of the 60 scoop and the, uh, you know, the, the, influence of the church and white supremacy um, going in and removing indigenous children from their homes and their reserves and adopting them out. And, and I think we, when Buffy was like, part of her story was that, um, you know, to her knowledge, she had come been adopted out of Canada. And so when she went back and, um, you know, was able to sort of meet and and be reconciled and reunited with that adoptive um, or with her biological family or her presumed biological family, I should say, um, you know, people, I think, really wanted to celebrate that story. I mean, that's like that's a that's a very deep, deep emotional um, story of, you know, this this acknowledging, I think, and like. Uh, the violence of being taken away from your birth family and then the process of that reunion is is a really meaningful story. It played out earlier for Buffy than for so many other people. And it, you know, it's an answer to a story that a lot of other people have also experienced in Canada, Indigenous people specifically. And not a lot of other people have that kind of answer. Even if it's not fully answered, mm-hmm. they they are missing that component of their story. There's not a reunion um, that is always possible, and it, so I think that's part of it. Uh, I think as well, um, you know, the the singer songwriter component of it. Canada Canada is also home to Joni Mitchell, 
Neil Young and Leonard Cohen uh, for or three, you know, incredibly important songwriters of that time who all really like established themselves in America in different ways. Um, Buffy always kept coming back to Canada <laughs> and, you know, her, she, and, and I think like also more broadly, she's, she, she also wanted to come back to Canada. Like she, she sort of, you know, has this, this global perspective. She travels all over the world and she has lived in Hawaii for a lot of times. She, she straddles so many different spheres, but it's, I think it's always been like kind of important for her to come back um, specifically to, you know, pie a pot, come back to Canada, have her feet on the ground. Like, I don't know. I, I think, I think those things factor into it and, and Canada really, at the very least was appreciative of her voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I sometimes feel like Canada is a, a little further along in the, the conversation about reconciling with being a, a colonial nation than the United States is. I feel like that's something that we're sort of just starting to talk about it. And, and it seems like Canada has been talking about it for you know 10 or 20 years in, in a much more public way. Yeah. And I think, I mean, part of that, I mean, part of that has to do with just, it's, it just celebrated its 150th um, anniversary a couple of years ago. So it's, it's a newer colonial institution than the States. And I think it also, um, that, that sort of newness means that our, our history is just very, the intergenerational trauma of that history is very present. Can you talk a bit about Buffy's childhood? You mentioned that she was adopted out of Canada, um, grew up in in New England. What was her childhood like? And, and, and what was the place of music in her childhood? Yeah, you know, I think she describes it really as sort of music saved her. N- Mother Nature saved her. The creation, uh, sort of like those that space of creation really saved her. And I think it, it ties in together for her so much that um, it just that combination of music and nature, like it, it, she really, I think holds them as being incredibly sacred and natural and occurring within her. Um, I, and I think like that is that, that has been part of her life since childhood. I mean, she was, I think, three when she started noodling around on the piano and I mean and she didn't noodle like I mean she was play she could play everything back that she heard she was hearing music in her head um she you know it was it was kind of a space of um liberation and creative liberation I think too you know and it wasn't she didn't have an easy childhood. Um, it was, there were lots of things that were happening, um, but she was, you know, experiencing uh, abuse and sexual abuse. And uh, there weren't a lot of places where she felt perfectly safe. Um, you know, one, the only, the, the only places were sort of like when she kind of retreated into the woods and, and animals and music and her mom, Winifred, like, uh, Winnie was a place of safety for her and then music and nature. And, uh, she was hearing a lot of 
talk at school and from other people that, you know, indigenous people didn't exist. So she couldn't be indigenous, but she very visibly, you know, looked quite different than the largely white town that she was growing up in. Um, And she looked different than, you know, the family she was being raised in. So I think there were like lots of, there were a lot of really challenging circumstances for her, but she really always has been sort of deeply rooted in positivity. And she really found a lot to, I don't know, just like a lot to hold close to her in nature and in music. Something about Buffy St. Marie's activism around indigenous issues that you, you talk about a bit in the book and that I think comes across really well in her music is that she doesn't really lay the blame for the abuses of colonialism on like individual white settlers, but really sort of approaches it as like, this is information you were never taught. Like you were, this, this was specifically erased from the history books. And so now you're learning about it through a three minute rock and roll song because you should have learned about it, you know, 40 years ago when you were in school, but that's not your fault. And, you know, better late than never. Do you feel like that sense of a kind of like generosity of spirit is in some ways rooted in her childhood? I mean, you, you mentioned her, her mother being a kind of constant source of support for her and, and they maintained a relationship into her adulthood. Uh, even though this was also a person who had participated in colonial violence by adopting her out of her original, um, you know, cultural context. Do you think that's kind of rooted in that experience? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's not really, you know, I think it's a really hard thing to sort of have a broader cultural context for what feels like, you know, you're the very real maternal familial relationship you feel to your mother like I I think like I I think where she really places a lot of um the her decisions about her songwriting and her like deliberateness in her songwriting and the creativity in her songwriting is sort of a little bit more rooted well yes one in like growing up around a lot of whiteness and sort of like she knows how to navigate whiteness you know um but she also never reduces colonialism to whiteness she she talks about hierarchies and pecking orders and stuff and part of that i think is is she was very interested in philosophy and that's what she studied in university as well as teaching and teaching methodology, she studied to be a grade one teacher. So she's taking she's taking these two very seemingly different approaches, as well as her own lived experience, and then bringing that into um, her philosophy, which is like, if only you knew, if if only you listener understood what is happening. Um, in indigenous communities, the reality of indigenous communities, and that's with both the, um, you know, the colonial uh, sort of exploitation and, and genocide, and, and cultural sort of extermination, um, but also the indigenous resistance and joy and the ongoing beauty of indigeneity. Um, so I think she's taking all of that, and then she's putting it in like songs that are anywhere between three and seven minutes and it's it's kind of I mean it's kind of incredible um but I mean that's why she's I think able to endure and she's able to get her community get like communicate so beautifully um is that she isn't interested in shaming people for 
ignorance no matter what she is always interested in giving them the information and her attitude is you wouldn't yell at a five-year-old you have to just help them along (laughs) right white people are five-year-olds in a sense honestly yeah like that and and we are like or i mean i'm sorry i don't actually know if if you're white but i am but yeah but yeah like i just i i do it's a much more generous place um then you know for example i operate in um i i get mad all the time but like i have the privilege of getting mad um and uh, you know it's it's again there's so many different things that go into who who is allowed to be mad and who isn't um and so i i think about that a lot too but i just think like you know she uh, buffy has has lived in this world and had this philosophy you know from from childhood um and this like very strong center from a time that i i cannot fathom like just having that sort of like that strength from you know being like four years old um and she's just continued to sort of like cultivate that and grow into that and like it's kind of why she has this incredible I don't know, kind of like glowing wisdom about her. It's um, it's wild. Yeah, yeah. That issue of anger comes up in the book quite a lot. That that that's kind of you know a, a lot of white critics responding to her music have have always thought that it was you know this this very angry music, and that she must be this very angry woman. But that's that's really not what's there, and that certainly isn't the 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 version of Buffy that comes through in her concerts or or in the interviews that you quote in the book. Yeah, it's white. I mean, I think that's white critics bringing, again, always that white lens. Like, and this is one of the problems we have, like, in a historical musical record of, like, whiteness being the pervading, pervasive lens over and over and over again is, like, (sighs) we as, like, white writers um, get in the way a lot. And we've been lied to that, like, this is objectivity. Uh, and we've participated in that lie and we've believed in that lie because it makes us feel good. But like, yeah, it's a, it's, it's just a, it's just another um, kind of like uh, cultural lie. And um, we have a chance to sort of like address that now, I think. Is that kind of methodologically part of why you decided to use so many like long block quotations from your interviews with Buffy in, in the book that you kind of want to present her story as much as possible as she understands it and, and as she sort of narrates it? Yeah, I think it's really important to have this book in particular be as much in Buffy's own words. Like I... Again, I think I can provide a uh, feminist and cultural critical framework for it, but I don't, particularly as like a white writer, I don't need to be inserting my my gaze there. You know, Buffy can tell her own story. Um, I think I think everyone should be allowed to tell their own story, and what you know what I can do is just provide a framework for that. And, you know, it's also one of my friends, uh, Hannah McGregor, she's a, a scholar and um, uh, and actually like a scholar of media and podcasting. And she described my work as consent based journalism with particular regards to the, the book. And I, I think that that is that feels good to me. Like, honestly, that feels 
um, extremely good to me. And I know it sort of flies in the face of what we we're trained to think of journalism as. But my hope is that um, my hope is always that, like, I'm not purely extractive as a writer. Uh, I think there's just so much more that we can do with media um, and storytelling by having uh, just just better conversations about whose stories we're telling, how they get told, and um, you know what what sort of is becomes part of that public record, um, and who's missing from those public records, you know. And I mean, Buffy's not. I mean, I, and maybe this would feel different with like a different person, but Buffy isn't particularly interested in. Um, being sainted or canonized or um, participating in uh, just, you know, this kind of like celebrity deification. Like she would say to me periodically, she's like, you know, we got to, you got to make sure it's not too, too pretty. You got to get more dirt. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I mean, cool. But like, you know, it's, it's not like she ever read it and was like, I don't like how you've characterized this. Like mm-hmm. this is very much, you know, and I, and she says this repeatedly and, and thinks of it this way. And I think this is really important that it's my book and it's her story. Mm, yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. I, I don't really feel like you, you felt much of a need to like, call her to account, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, in the same way that you might, if you were writing a book about, you know, Joni Mitchell or, you know, or, or, or someone, someone who, who has made, I don't know, more questionable <laughs> aesthetic, moral, political judgments in, in her life. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm picking sides here, but I do feel like Buffy St. Marie's on the right side of history. So it's, it's well, maybe yes, a little bit she easier. Is. Yeah. To, she, yeah, for sure. Like she's yeah. never, she's, Yep, she is on the right side of history, and she just is really, I think, patiently waiting for a lot of people to catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, I, and I mean, she does sort of like address it in, and we talk about it a little bit, and it comes up here and there. Like some people are critical that she's she isn't angrier, you know, that she doesn't have this sort of more um, forceful uh, message. But I, I, I think she's, I think she's right that like that kind of anger will burn you up and burn you out. And she is angry. She like absolutely is angry sometimes for sure. Like we all are. And it's how she chooses to sort of convey that anger. Like she, she makes choices that protect her energy and protect her mental health and protect her body. And, um, you know, she she also has chosen to a certain extent, um, you know, how much she wishes to engage with the fame side of the rock industry. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about her early career a bit. She kind of started out in the folk scene, um, but her influences were always kind of outside of that world, at least at least in part. In that way, she does kind of remind me of Joni Mitchell, like somebody who like, you know, from the start, you could kind of tell was not going to be a, a folky forever. Um, yeah. Why did she, I mean, was it just that that was, that was what people were buying in sort of 1962? Is, is that <laughs> is that why she decided to become a, a folk singer or, or was there, did she have some, you know, deeper connection to that genre? Well, I think, 
I think she actually really um, – she says at one point that she was, like, basically a journalist spreading the news. And I do think that that's actually sort of a lot of the root of a lot of folk music. So I think right, yeah. I think she did embrace that. Um and she, you know, she didn't have a lot of money. She had a guitar. You can strap that to your back and travel along with it. And um, the scene very much was coffee houses at the time. And so she's she's someone who wants to create conversations in her music. I think it makes a lot of sense that like folk is, you know, folk is where she found the at least the foundation to be able to do that in a public way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, even if the songs were sort of, you know, as she says, like tuned weird and upside down and she had th- these interests in like flamenco and blues and rock and all these other things. And she she already wanted to do other stuff like um, I think it makes so much sense, actually, that like she she became this kind of person who um brings actual like stories that really mean something and say something to folk music Mm -hmm. you know like i i think like when when i really think about sort of the activism that's associated with folk music and protest music and and things like that i i listened to her debut album it's my way and like this is i think one of the most overtly like political records um, of the early sixties. Like Mm -hmm. it's, and it's because it's personal. The stories are rooted in um, mostly in some kind of uh, lived experience or at the very least, like sort of this eyewitness testimonial experience, you know, like, yeah. And I just, yeah, I just think, like, it makes a lot of sense. Like, yes, you can hear that there are other influences and, like, that she'll probably take this other places. But, like, that's sort of the power of folk music at the time is, like, um, you know, when she wrote Universal Soldier, America was still denying they were involved in the war. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So she really was spreading the news, you know? She was... As that song took flight and made its way around college campuses and um, onto bases and like, uh, you know, it it sort of slowly moved throughout the world because it didn't come out until 1964, but people knew it. People were singing it like it, you know, that that is that is folk music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like the singing of the Reuben James or whatever. Like it's it's, you know, the, the, the living newspaper idea. Exactly. Um, I'd love to talk more about that song. I think it's a it's kind of an incredible song. I mean, like just as as a work of protest music that manages to sort of suggest that uh, we are all complicit in the injustices of war because they're systemic. Like it's it's like yeah. these are systemic issues, but that doesn't mean you're off the hook. That actually means that it's your fault because you're part of the system. You know, like she sings, he's the universal soldier, and he really is to blame. Like she's not. She's not, you know, letting any individual person off the hook in the way that, you know, a song like Who Killed Davy Moore has always struck me as a little bit sort of just throwing up your hands and being like, well, I guess, you know, bad things just happen. But you know, no, she really wants to say that we don't live under monarchies anymore. If somebody goes to war and fights in your name and you don't even know about it, like that's you did something wrong, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. I I think it's really like honestly, every time I clock that it's like it's like two like two and a half minutes long. Yeah. And I like I just honestly my mind kind of falls like just out of my body, you know? Like I just I mean like when you think about when you think about it, particularly as writers, like, you know, and I'm not a songwriter, but just thinking about what you can do with writing. The fact that she's able to put to a song this massive, massive challenge to the world to stop thinking of war as something that happens apart, like away from you, that you are somehow not actively like part of the problem. Um, Mm -hmm. Like regardless of whether or not you are, you know, part of the military or outside of the military, you think you're, um, you know, just like this, this person who uh, war doesn't touch or whatever, like she's drawing everyone into the same mirror that she's holding up and she's holding herself to account as well. And that's, I think, like one of the most powerful things that she does is like she's she's never she's never like trying to let herself off and a lot of people seem to write from that perspective where they don't take they don't include themselves in the accountability process but i think i think buffy just always does and that's one of the things that makes her activism and her work and her um i don't know just like her her art so powerful can you talk a bit about how she deals with specifically indigenous issues in her like 60s and 70s work? I'm thinking of a song like My Country, Tis of Thy People, You're Dying. Um, I mean, she's she's talking about stuff in that song that I feel like most of society wasn't talking about for another, you know, 40 or 50 years after that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm just even thinking of like in, in My Country, Tis of Thy People, which came out in um, – I always get confused if it's 66 or 67. Um, But anyway, one of those two years, um, you know, she's, she's talking explicitly about residential schools and that is, um, you know, really a conversation that like, it obviously has been happening um, outside of the, like the, the main headlines for a long time, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's naming something that like, the last residential school in Canada didn't close until 1996. Um, yeah. So, you know, more than 30 years before that, she is talking about the horrors of residential school and the abuses at residential school and the, just even the, uh, the violence of being taken away from your community. Um, obviously in the last year, uh, there have been some really traumatizing um, sort of, I mean, indigenous people knew, um, but like now there are actual, you know, mass graves on the sites of former sites of residential schools. And um, we're, we're, we're literally seeing the, the cost to human life of what these residential schools did. And we're seeing that, um, you know, as as more and more bodies are found and more and more um, bones are recovered, it's 
I mean, it's I guess it I guess it's the thing that the larger public needs to look at in order to really face up to what has been going on. But I mean, Buffy has been singing about this her entire career. Mm-hmm. And so again, this you know, this this idea that um we and I'm gonna like the the we here is really like settlers and white people like of you know uh, both the u.s and canada that we didn't know like i i we knew we didn't want to know yeah you know and so i just think like but i think like that's one component of you know um indigenous realities that buffy is singing about in her songs um the 60s and 70s were really huge with the American Indian movement and lots of grassroots activism um, for indigenous rights. And, and uh, there were like, there was also just like a tremendous amount of violence happening with treaty exploitations and like not honoring treaties. And um, that's still all going on. I mean, standing rock uh, we've just uh, like all of, all of these things are still happening now. And and I, I just like I can't honestly like I, I, I can't imagine like from I mean, singing about it forever and um, having it still be happening. I mean, Buffy always says the good news is now more people are talking about the bad news. I'm paraphrasing, but um, but you know, as these things continue to sort of. Uh, take up more space in the headlines and people start to really um, I think like start having conversations around um, just even acknowledging that it's happening and uh, and that it did happen and it's ongoing and that there is ongoing trauma and we can't get to a place of reconciliation without doing a lot of work (laughs) Um, you know I think more and more people are going to turn to Buffy's music and not just, not just the stuff from the sixties and seventies, but like how these themes are continuing to echo in her songs today. The other really important part, I think though, um, that, you know, Buffy always talks about is, you know, not, not just, um, not just like sort of facing up to the hardship, but also just like indigenous autonomy, indigenous rights, indigenous, like, um, joy, um, you know, basically like just letting indigenous people live and, uh, letting them live like full, complete lives, um, and, you know, be, uh, having land back, like uh, having, uh, no further sort of like political violence that they're experiencing, uh, at the hands of so many different people and institutions that are like the hands of the government. I, I just, I don't know. There's, there's a lot happening right now and there's a lot happening in her music. And, um, I think that, I think that they will both continue to sort of like be places that, um, we can, we can find answers and we can also witness and then we can figure out, um, you know, how, like through listening, through really deep listening, uh, figure out sort of like some ways to um, repair some damage. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about her more recent albums, uh, especially Power in the Blood and uh, Medicine Songs, which I think is the most recent. 
um, yeah. album. Um, and, and these are really rock albums. I mean, even, you know, they have elements of electronic music even in them. Uh, they're, they're very far away from the kind of singer songwriter music that she was making in the sixties. Um, how did that come about? I mean, you know, she's, I don't know, in her early eighties now. Right. I mean, <laughs> she's, she's late in her career to be making such a, such a wide stylistic turn. I, I, I don't, I, I can't really think of anybody else who's done anything, you know, comparable in that way. I mean, I think most people kind of find their shtick and do their shtick for a while, you know, but so, so, you know, how, how has she made that turn towards rock music and, and, you know, why did she do that? And, and, you know, what's been the kind of effect of that? Well, I think she's always made rock music and always made electronic music, but just like a lot of people aren't that familiar with her back catalog. So it feels, it feels sort of newer. Um, she also does continue to sort of like deepen her, like she's always experimented. She's always been wildly experimental and she continues to embrace like new technologies and new approaches um, and work with some different producers. So I think that that also plays into it. Uh, but like, for example, you know, like she, she had, um, uh, you know, rock songs on, uh, like some of her or like so, so for example like a pop song like she wrote this song until it's time for you to go which became like a huge pop standard elvis presley neil diamond like so like barbara streisand Cher, like so many people have covered this song and that was actually on her record in 1965 her second album mm. and um and then by you know 67 she was using electronic and rock and pop and uh, sort of like broadening her sound and then in 69 she made like you know, the first uh electronic quadraphonic <laughs> album and illuminations you know and so so she's done this her whole career but i think power in the blood was a really big um a really big deal people were fully unprepared to kind of like hear something like a bit of a club banger from a woman who was 78 <laughs> at the time or like 76 at the time. Sorry. And I think that that just like ended up kind of blowing people's minds. Like they just, they weren't that familiar with her discography and they had sort of associated her only with the folk movement as if she hasn't made records for the last 40 years. And, <laughs> And it had been, you know, the last record she made had been in 2008. So it was like ripe for a new generation. Um, and also, like, I think just much more social media this time mm -hmm. and a lot, a lot more diversity in who's writing about music in 2015 versus even 2008. Um, and so, I yeah, I think people are just kind of floored. Uh, I know I even like who did have some some in you know knowledge about her back catalog power in the blood really floored me too like it just it really felt it really felt like it captured the energy um <clears throat> of that moment and and that there's like a lot of possibility there's a lot of hope there's this um just this like surge of I don't know, excitement. Mm -hmm. well, and one of the things uh, on that album that I think sort of sonically is so, is so, you know, so great to hear. And, and so 
um, you know, interesting to a, a listener who's not familiar with this kind of music much is how she kind of seamlessly melds rock influences with indigenous traditional music. Yeah. Like, I mean, she, you know, she, and again, something she's been doing for like a long time, like in 1976, she recorded her first version of Starwalker, which was, you know, in had powwow samples and she has continued to sort of add to those powwow samples over and over the years. And she's, she's got so many, um, (laughs) she's got so much going on, but even just, even the um, 2015 version of Starwalker continued to build on previous iterations. And she, she really does embrace the technology um, that, you know, nothing like scares her. Like, and that's, I think actually that's kind of maybe what makes her quite different than a lot of other people is she's never really calcified. Like she's never been like, okay, I know enough now Mm -hmm. I'm good. She is, endlessly curious she is always trying to learn more like she is when they talk about like a lifelong learner like that's that's Buffy you know she and so I think it like continues to play out in her music it plays out in um her relevance you know people people just decide to stop evolving and they make themselves irrelevant and they coast on stuff that they did in, you know, a past life or whatever, um, or 20 years ago or, or what have you, uh, they think that they don't really need to keep, I don't know, just keep like learning and adapting and evolving. And that's not her. Like Buffy's whole thing is that she is always ripening. Like that's her, that's one of her favorite phrases. And, and I think even in like medicine songs in 2017, you know, that's, that's like, her collection of sort of activist anthems and there's two new songs and like she has, um, you know, she, she really, she called them medicine songs because she really didn't know what else to call them. Cause they're not all protest songs and they're not, you know, and activism, like that's kind of a word that, you know, I get to throw around at her, but I don't think it's a word that she necessarily thinks about herself. She just, she's just doing what she believes is best for the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, what she wants to do um and like so she medicine knows what it like she's she's like no 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 i know activists right well like part of it part of it she, seems to be a kind of modesty on her part well i think and i think like in terms of sort of um knowing yeah there's a modesty for sure like she she knows that like she will she could she could show up and like bring more attention to something and she'll do that if she if she needs to but most of the time she knows that you know the work is being done on the ground it's the grassroots activism and she has so much like support and um love in her heart for like what people on the ground are actually doing like she knows what her place is you know um and what she can bring to the table and what she needs and, and the space that she makes to sort of like honor the people who are really doing the work on the ground floor and, and, and that community work. Um, and she's so supportive of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she, she never really wants to like step in front of that. Like she, she wants to always sort of share the mic and pass the mic. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's something we can all sort of, um, another lesson really from Buffy. <laughs> yeah. 
you've kind of met, you've mentioned how she's kind of always looking forward in in trying to do new things and learn new things, but she's also always looking backwards. I mean, those two albums, Medicine Songs and Power in the Blood, both include songs from throughout her career. Did, did you ask her why she's so interested in doing that and kind of revisiting previous material and re-recording and and you know even writing new lyrics to some new to some older songs? Did did, did you ask her about kind of why she feels so compelled to do that? Yeah, I think it's like, I think it's a, it's that, it's that sort of thing about constantly learning new information and revising and, um, you know, just iterations. Like she's, she's always sort of like an iteration of herself, you know, she's always sort of evolving into something new and that ripening concept. I think she feels similarly about the songs. Like Mm -hmm. there's new technology. Maybe she didn't get the vocal the way she wanted to one time. Like she really does like to sort of build on the past um, and bring it into sort of a more contemporary, if not futuristic context. And Mm -hmm. I think she's also very aware that, you know, a lot of a lot of her songs, most people have never heard. Mm-hmm. Um, so if she really believes in a song um, and she thinks that it hasn't had a chance to do the work that it could, then she's also, you know, bringing that forward as well. Um, and so I think that that's kind of really interesting, too. It's just because she's always sort of like... Like Buffy, the thing about Buffy, I find, is that like she's kind of like spanning times, you know, she's like backwards and forwards and she's, you know, moving in a circle and she's like everything sort of informs itself. It all collapses on itself and expands from itself. And it's like this really kaleidoscopic sort of creation that's super cool and interesting. And and it's really wonderful to see the way something from 1942 is informing something in 2021 and how they have continued to sort of speak to each other across time, you know, like, and I, I think a lot about um, like even just a song like Star Walker. I mean, it is an incredible piece of like rock and indigenous powwow sample. Um, it is a celebration of you know, real indigenous people in her life. It is a love letter to um, indigenous communities and indigenous leaders and uh, indigenous grassroots folks. Um, and it also is a song that continues to be really exciting. Like when you, when it's played live, like it is such a thrilling song <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's thrilling for everyone there. And then the powwow samples come on and she's singing along to the powwow samples and it's just, it comes alive. And like each version of that song kind of, I think like captures the spirit of the moment in which it's recorded. And so I think it, it does become this sort of like living, growing testimonial of a song. Well, Andrea Warner, I think that's a great place to end. Thanks so much for your book, uh, Buffy St. Marie, The Authorized Biography. And thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about it. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm I'm very long-winded. So, you know, hopefully hopefully everything is okay on your end. No, that's, that's your job. I'm interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, yeah, there's like, there's so much to talk about with Buffy. And um, it's... Uh, it's just it's just such a delight. How do you fit it all in, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>